Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. It's great to see you all. Thank you for, for making it, and we're um, excited about getting into God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you would, turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If ever you're in the New Testament, this will help you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. After that, it's a book of Acts, which is basically the history, where the Gospels are the history of Jesus. Acts is the history of the beginning of the church. And then you get into Paul's letters, and there's a dozen, 13 of them. And the last bit of Paul's letters all start with a T. So those are like Thessalonians, Timothy. So if you find something in your New Testament and you're, there's a T that's you're close to Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, we've been um, going through that. Let me, let me begin by just, again, giving you a little background on this book because I think it will help us understand the passage that we're looking at today. Um, first, that's the, uh, if, you, if you look at the history of the church, the history of Paul, Paul went on four missionary journeys. Uh, we, three of them are recorded in the book of Acts, and we know from his other letters that he wrote, there was a fourth journey where he went to Spain and other places. And so there were four journeys he went on. Um, the context of Thessalonians is he had just come back from his first, first missionary journey, and a lot was happening in Christianity. Um, Peter had gone and done some ministry, and they were seeing that the gospel was opening up to the Gentiles. They had they had, they had known Jesus had said, take the gospel first to Judea, which was the Jewish area, Samaria, which was the half-Jewish, half-Gentile area, and then to the other parts of the earth. And as they were moving out that way, something that shocked them was how receptive the Gentiles were to the gospel. It was just powerful, and it was just this wide-open, if you will, market. I hate to use that word, but it was just this wide open reception that was going on. And so what happened, they came back together, the apostles did, and you can read this in Acts 15, and they basically were saying, hey, what do we do about this? Because their Gentiles are very different than Jews. They grew up, and they basically made a decision that's very important in Christianity, is they began to really reason through the scriptures, and they understood this. In the Old Testament, the Bible promised, and they called it the Old Covenant, God promised again and again with the coming of the Messiah, there would be a new covenant. And under the new covenant, one of the things it talks about is that sins would be washed away, that God would actually change the hearts of people. He'd give them a new heart. And then he would put the Holy Spirit in them. And if the Holy Spirit was in them, he would enable them to walk and live out the command. So they're basically kind of understanding, like, how do we what do we tell these guys in light of these truths? And they made a really important decision. They were talking about Jewish ceremonies, circumcision particularly, and others. Do they still do this? And they basically came to a conclusion that they didn't want to encumber them. They didn't want to burden them with all these laws. And literally, the, the Jewish guys are talking about it said, hey, we didn't keep these laws ourselves. You know, why are we going to force them on other people? And so what they basically did was said this three things. Number one, they said, don't worship idols. Number two, uh, don't be sexually immoral. And number three, don't eat food or meat that's been strangled because of the, of the blood in it. So that was basically it. 
Don't worship idols. Be sexually pure. And I don't think any of us here are tempted to eat meat that's been strangled. But that, that was it. And so they, they simplified Christianity, and it, it just it continued to spread. So Paul had a partner named Barnabas who he did his first journey with. And he and Barnabas kind of had a dispute about something. So they ended up, Paul got another partner named Silas. And they went out and they were going around. And first thing they did on this journey is they went to the churches they had started and they told them the decision. Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we handle things. You know, we're, we're simplifying this. We don't want you, you know, caught up in these ceremonies and all this stuff. And, and so they went around and told them that. And it was, everybody was excited. And then they just said, let's go somewhere. So they ended up. The Holy Spirit spoke to them to go to Macedonia. They went there, and Paul preached in a city called Philippi. He got brutally persecuted, but he got a church started there. And then the second place he went was to the capital of this region called Macedonia, and that city was called Thessalonica. And he went there, and we can read about that story in the book of Acts. He went there, and three Sabbaths in a row, he went to the Jewish synagogue that was right in the middle of the city where the Jews met and Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and he taught them that Jesus was the Christ. And he won a lot of people to the Lord. He won some Jews. He won a lot of the Gentiles, and he won a lot of prominent women. And then what began to happen is these Gentiles who converted began to reach their friends, and there became a real strong swell in three weeks' time. And the leaders of the synagogue got jealous, got mad. They felt threatened. And so they... They really tried to get Paul, like, seriously arrested in, in, in serious uh, stuff, not just get him out of there. So Paul ended up having to leave. He left the city after three weeks, and he goes to another town called Berea. Why is there in Berea? The same Jewish leaders that were mad at him at Thessalonians follow him to Berea, and they begin to persecute him, and they run him out of there. And then he ends up going to Corinth, and it's, it's, things work out a little better there. But he's, he's in this situation where he's just being harassed by Jewish leaders who don't like what he's saying. He got kicked out of a town. They followed him. They kicked him out of another town. And so it, this is kind of, the, kind of what he's going through. And so what Paul, in writing Thessalonians, was concerned about is he sent this young man named Timothy to go and find out how they were doing because he was like, Three weeks, you know, what, what's going to happen? They went, Timothy came back and told Paul, man, you would not believe these guys are on fire. The word of God is spreading all over the place. It's like, and Paul is writing this letter to go, fantastic, guys. This is wonderful. This is great news. We're so excited. And he's just, just expressing his joy for the most part, over what, how they're doing and what's going on. He gets into a couple theological things in chapters 4 and 5, but basically that's the first three chapters we've been looking at. This is Paul just sharing his heart and sharing his excitement over them. So we come to this passage, and let me read these verses here. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verse 13 through verse 20. And Paul writes, and he says, We, thank, we also thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but what it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Verse 14, for you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews 
who killed our Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they might be saved. In this way, they are heap upon themselves, heap upon their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Verse 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a long time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Now let's just kind of look at this passage, kind of go through, scan it, and, and kind of understand Paul's thought and what he's speaking uh, in this passage. The first thing he says in verse 13, and it's really powerful, he says, I'm so glad that you accepted our message for what it is. It is not the word of man. It is the very word of God. And then he says, because of that, it is performing a work in you who believe. Now, here's a, a really important principle for spiritual growth. If you and I will accept the authority of God's word, we'll experience its power in our life. Accept the authority of God's word, we'll experience its power in our life. Paul was, again, had a Jewish background. He was a Jewish uh, theologian, a, a very talented guy. He studied under the great, one of the greatest Jewish theologians of his day, a guy named Gamal. And Jews understood religion entirely different than the rest of the world did. The rest of the world was polytheistic. The rest of the world believed that the universe always existed in a static state, and the gods they worshipped were just entities that controlled the elements. They were powerful influences that would uh, bless their life. And so they basically, their worship was about two things, getting the gods to provide for them or to protect them. That's all they did. There was no theology. There was no truth. There was no history. There was stories, but there was no book. Judaism was entirely different. It understood there was one God who created everything. There was once a time when there was nothing, and there, the God they worshiped brought into being everything that exists. We, we know now that actually is true. And they understood that that God created humanity, and he created everything for a purpose, and he revealed that purpose in his word. In his word, he gave to men. He inspired men to write it. Now, we all know the Bible was written by men. The real question is, were these men inspired by God? How would you validate that? What makes the Bible, what would make claims that the Bible is actually God's word and it's authoritative in our life? What would make them credible? What would make them believable? What, what sort of authority do you have besides saying, well, I grew up with it, I like what it says, you know, and this is my religion? What, what are objective grounds for believing the Bible is really God's word, that it really has come down from heaven through men and it speaks to us today? 
Well, here's what the Bible says are its credentials. It is in the fact that it foreshadows events and they happen. I was reading about foreshadowing this week and just what it meant, but it basically is when an author or a writer gives you a hint of something that's going to happen, and then when it happens, you can go, aha. And what it reveals to you is the writer is taking this story in a certain direction, and there's, 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 and this is what we find out in the Bible. In other words, let's say that you were in a, a church service, and there was an announcement about a baptism. After that baptism, it happened. You would go, oh, they, okay, that was about that. This is what we see in the Bible. See, the Bible has 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. But the Bible really tells one story. It's an anthology. It's written over 1,500 years. But it has one story. It's about a broken world and a broken creation and how God is coming to save it. God is coming to bring salvation to it. And in the Old Testament, they talked about what that salvation would look like, what it would happen, how it would be brought about. In the, in the Gospels, we understand that Jesus is fulfilling those promises. He is bringing that salvation. He literally is God bringing that salvation about. And the New Testament tells us how to live in light of that. Literally, the name Jesus means God saves. That's literally who he is, God bringing salvation. And if you read the Old Testament what you will find, and it's remarkable, there are, I can tell you right now, there are four things, I, things that the Old Testament tells you will happen that happen. There are way more than this, but, but they're in that 10 Facts book, you can read these. We talk about these. We, talk, we show Bible verses. One of the things it tells you is this Messiah who's coming is going to be killed. He's going to be executed. He's going to be martyred. He's going to be executed. It tells you that in, in Psalm 22. Tells you that in Isaiah 53. We're going to look at a passage in Daniel. There's many passages that tell you the Messiah who's coming to bring salvation is oddly going to be killed, is going to be executed. Something else the Bible tells you about uh, that's the, the one who's bringing salvation is that once he comes, salvation will no longer be concentrated in Judaism, but this salvation is going to spread to Gentiles all over the world. For the most part, in this room, we are all fulfillment of that, that promise. That once he comes, it's going to spread all over the place. And it did. Something else the Bible says about the Messiah is that he will be great. Micah 5, 2 is written in 600 B.C. talks about the Messiah who's coming. And it says in, uh, in verse 2, he'll be born in Bethlehem. In verse 4, the same sentence, it says his greatness will reach the end of the earth. Well, lo and behold, guess today who is the single greatest figure in all human history? Jesus. When, when Mary had an encounter with Gabriel and the, the, she was, you know, the, the virgin birth, the story of the virgin birth, she talks to an angel. The angel tells her, Mary, your son is going to be great. And then the fourth thing, and the, Mary also, the angel also tells her son is, and he will be called the son of God. He'll be called the Son of God. You know who in history is called the Son of God? Jesus. You know who else is? Nobody else. 
Muhammad's not called the son of God. Buddha's not called the son of God. No religious leader, no leader in history that, that has survived, has, their title, the son of God, is not attached to anybody in history except for Jesus. Two and a half billion people today profess Jesus Christ to be the son of God. And I could go on and on and show you this, but when the Bible, when Moses was with the Israelites and they were leaving and he was about to die and he, his, his last words to them, he told them, he said, men, cleave to this word, hold fast to it. And he goes, it's not idle words. They are life. They are the length of your days. They're not idle. It means literally they're not empty. There's something in the bowl. It's not without content, without context. It, it, it's, it's, and he it says, it is your life. It's the length of your days. By it, you will enter into your inheritance. You'll enter into the promised land. You will enter into what God's prepared for you. Paul is saying, man, you guys get it. When a believer will do what these guys are doing, when they will receive God's word, not as the word of a man, but as the very word of God, and there's a solemnness about it, and there's a seriousness about it, they're going to experience the power of God. This is the way he's saying. Then he goes on here, and let me read the next section because it's a little bit, uh, it'll throw you. So let me read it again just to throw you before we try to unthrow. Uh, verse 14 says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displeased God, are hostile to everyone, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. In this way, they heap upon themselves their sins to the limit, the wrath of God, has come upon them at last. Now, that is a very strong thing to say. You know, last week, I think I read something in the passage, and, and, and someone told me in our elder meeting this week that someone on, online commented they thought I was anti-Semitic. And I thought, well, my Jewish wife might disagree with you. My oldest son, who literally I took her Jewish maiden name, Goldman, you're not trying to hide anything, he literally has my middle, that is his middle name, and I'm very proud of it. So sometimes you can, you can think something about somebody, but when you get into context, you go, okay, maybe it's not what I thought. Maybe it's just something I'm predisposed to believe about people. For, for, maybe that's an amazing thing to discover, that we do that. But, but here's what happens. Let's, let's look at this. What Paul is, we've got to remember this about Paul. Number one, Paul's Jewish. Number two, let me remember this. Jesus was Jewish. Number three, Christianity emerged and believed it was the fulfillment of the promises that were in the Old Testament from Judaism. Number four, every single early Christian, the disciples, all of them were Jewish. Now, Christianity is not anti-Jewish. But what Paul is talking about is a specific group of Jewish people that were going after him, that were fighting him. In fact, when he says this is the same thing the church in Judea uh, was experiencing. You know what the church in Judea was full of? 
Judea is a region back then where Jews lived, only Jews lived. He's saying, man, even in Judea, Jews that converted, they're going through this with the Jewish leadership. And he's, just, he's going on about that. He's just basically saying, hey, this is what you're experiencing is no different than what they're experiencing back in the homeland. It's just what's going on now. And when he says this in verse 15, this is kind of interesting. He talks about how the Jews were the ones who killed Jesus. And he even adds this, and the prophets. And let me tell you what's very interesting about that. You know, Paul's writing this in 45 A.D. This is almost word for word what Matthew records Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, if you read the book of Matthew toward the end of it, he begins to talk about um, to the Jewish people. He says this to them in, in chapter 21. He says, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a nation that's going to actually produce it. They're going to produce its fruit. And he's basically saying Judaism is not going to be the center of where God's moving anymore. It's going to be in this new thing we're doing, this new covenant that's coming about. You'll watch the promises of salvation that were promised in the Old Testament. They're going to happen through the Christian faith, the new tree, not through Judaism. And this is what Jesus said to him. And then in it, he begins to tell him, hey, look, you guys have, Lily says these very words, you're going to kill me? Just like you've killed every prophet before me. And because of that, the wrath of God is coming on you. Now, what does he mean by that? And Paul quotes this, the wrath of... One thing that's interesting about this, it tells you the book of Matthew was written probably in the 40s, written very early uh, in in time. But also, what, what, what is he talking about? And there's a very important event that we need to understand when we're reading anything in the Bible about the second coming of Jesus and the wrath of God in this particular thing. And it was an event that happened in 70 A.D. And, and this is kind of talk, kind of will take back to, to a book in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. I hope I'm not going to give you too much information here. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's a prophecy that Daniel receives from an angel. And that angel tells him four things. At this time, Daniel is, is the, the Jewish people have been conquered. They're in Babylon. It's time for their captivity at the end, but it hadn't ended yet. So Daniel starts praying, and this angel appears to him. And he says, okay, Daniel, this is going to start happening, but let me tell you what's, what's going on here. Number one, there's going to be a decree from a king to send the Jewish people back to go rebuild their temple. After that, the, the king, the ruler of Messiah is going to come. And then he says, in the middle of, of, of that time, in the, during that time, the Messiah is going to be cut off. He will have nothing. And then later on, another empire is going to rise up, and it's going to destroy that temple for good. And once it does that, there will be no more sacrifices. There will be no more worship. The whole thing will be over. Now, this is how this played out. The temple was rebuilt. Uh, and you can read about that in, in Nehemiah and Ezra. They rebuilt the walls. Later, the, the whole temple was rebuilt. And then after that, the Messiah came. The Messiah, as we know, Jesus was cut off from the people. And if you read Matthew 24, a lot of times we think Jesus is talking about the second coming there. It's been taught that way. It's not. 
In Matthew 24, you know that kind of wars and rumors of wars and all that? If you read it, what's happening there, you could read in verse 1 of Matthew 24. What's going on? Jesus with his disciples. They're in Jerusalem. This big, beautiful, awesome temple standing there. I've seen it. It's, it was an incredible sight in the, in the ancient world. And they're just gawking at how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. And Jesus tells them, I'll tell you the truth. This place is going to be absolutely torn to the ground. And they go, well, when's this going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then Jesus starts telling them all these things. And he tells them this whole thing at the end of the book is going to happen within a generation, within a 40-year span. Jesus was crucified within a generation. The temple was destroyed. And what it symbolized was this, that what Daniel had prophesied, what all the prophets had prophesied about a new covenant, it is that old covenant that relied on sacrifices, the old covenant that relied on all this was over. And the new covenant had come where forgiveness is not going through a ritual once a year. Forgiveness is once and for all forever. You are cleansed of your sin they're gone. And this is in, in the, the idea of 70 AD, the Romans coming in destroying was a symbol of God's wrath and God's judgment on his people for rejecting his son and literally offering him up to be crucified. And this is what Paul's talking about. He's telling them, hey, I know you're going through it. I know you're being persecuted, but there's going to be a definitive event that's coming. It's really almost now. And once that's over, you know, it's going to be done. And this is what he's talking about here. So we go through here and we read the rest of this passage in Thessalonians. And he says in verse 17, Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated to you from a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. You know, that word orphaned is an is a interesting word in the Greek, but it's just this sort of deep longing of separation from a child. Those of you that have raised children, those of you that have had kids, dads, moms, you'll, you'll know what it's like to think, what if something happened to me? It, it, you've had, I've had friends that have died when they were raising young children. And the most disturbing, the most galvanizing thought in their soul is, I won't see my kids. What about my kids? What about my boys? What about my daughters? What are they going to do without me? How am I, I can't be there. And, and it's a horrifying thing. And Paul's saying, this is what I felt like. I felt like, a, like, an, like an orphaned, you know, guy. just like, like I won't be around my kids. I won't. And this is his longing and his love for this Thessalonian church. And he, and he goes through there and he says, man, I wanted to come to you in verse 18. But Satan blocked our way. That's a, that's a word that we use in the, it's a military word for just setting up a barricade. It's like I was trying to travel down that road to get to you, but Satan blocked him and he couldn't come. And then he says in verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we glory in the presence of God, of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? And the, the idea of a crown is when you would compete in an Olympic event back then Today, we give you a, a gold medal. Back then, they put a wreath on your head. And he's going, man, you're, my, you're what I'm proud of. You're, you're, you know, you're what I celebrate. Um, and, and this is kind of, the, again, the affection, the feeling he has for them. So Paul's talking here. And he's talking about, 
And I want to just kind of make this last point about the authority and the power of God's Word. The authority of God's Word. When we respect its authority, we'll experience its power. What does it mean to respect the authority of God's Word? And there's one word that I think really will summarize it, and that word is calibration. Calibration. It means that basically when the Bible says something, I align my life with it. I don't align truth to my feelings and my instincts and my impulses. I align my instincts, my impulses, whatever I'm feeling, I align them to the truth. In the summer, Lisa and I had an experience twice the last two times we've gone on long trips. We went to Dallas and then her parents this summer to do a wedding and then to see her parents. Then we actually, on our um, 33rd anniversary, went to the mountains. And both times we went, my car light came on. I got a Honda. It's not that old. Shouldn't have happened. You're driving a Honda and the car light, engine light comes on. You go, well, you know, happens twice. And the first time we did, we were driving at night. We were going to go try to get all the long way to Dallas and stay in a hotel. We just got through Atlanta and it came on. And I'm like, I thought, you know what? I could ignore this because I don't want it to be true. Because I really had, you know, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I'm doing a long trip, I get it like mapped out and I speed if I can. And I, 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 try, to, I try to make good time. It's just, I don't know what it does. It just does something to me to just do that and make progress. I'm just, and this is really disrupting what I want. But I believed in the authority of the computer system that was programming that car. And I'm glad I did. There was a transmission issue. They got it fixed. It was an inconvenient thing to do. Kind of disrupted my plans. But it was so much better than ignoring it and just doing what I wanted to do because it was encumbering me. This is what it is to yield to the authority of God's word, to treat it like what it actually is, not the words of man, not just good advice. This is the word of God. This is God instructing you and I about how to live and about what's, what he wants for our lives. And, and what is absolutely vital for you and I to do in our lives is to calibrate our lives to truth. The world we live in now has gotten nutty, you may have noticed. Part of the reason is that we've been doing this for years. We've been calibrating truth to our feelings, our impulses. And those can go down, they've gone down crazier and crazier and more bizarre places. I think finally we're kind of going, wait, did we, did we mean to get here? No, it's just what happens when you do that. And this is, this is what he's saying. Treat it like the Word of God. And then he says this. It performs a work in you who believe. And what is he talking about there? Okay, I'm going to yield to its authority. What does it mean to experience its power? Well, there's several verses that talk about this all throughout the Bible. They talk about the power of God's Word and, and the ability of God's Word to change you and me. One verse is in James chapter 1. Jesus' brother's writing, and he says, you know what? 
accept the word humbly. And he says the way you accept it is like it's a seed planted in your soul. And planted in your soul. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter, who was, again, the leader of the disciples, 1 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, verse 2. It talks about how you are and I are to long for the word of God like a baby for milk. And it says when you do that, you will grow in respects to salvation. How many have ever noticed that you're messed up? Anybody besides me kind of aware of that? You have fears you don't like to live with. You have maybe sins that you battle with that you don't want to. You have thoughts. You have impulses. You have tendencies. That, you know where that all came from? Seeds. Seeds planted in your life. Something you saw, something you did, something you experienced, something you received from authority. You just have seeds all planted in your life. You and I do. Weeds planted in our life. And what God wants to do with his word is plant different seeds in our soul. Plant different stuff in our soul. When we become a Christian, the Bible says we have a new man. We are a new person. You can read about that. It's one verse is in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Another one's in Colossians 3. It talks about that old man that you were. Take it off and put on the new man. And he says the way you do it is by renewing your mind. Getting in the word, planting new seeds in your soul. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't just go around mindlessly being a, you know, a, a sheep just following everybody around you. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by renewing your mind and you will prove, you'll produce the will of God. Don't be formed Conform. Don't just follow around. Be transformed. Be what God wants you to be. And you do it by renewing your mind. And this is what I remember as a young, young Christian. One of the most important things I ever learned. I was a 16, 17-year-old in high school with all kind of stuff going on just like you may be experiencing today. Sins I was battling with, fears I was battling with, and I didn't want to I was tired of it. I didn't want to live like that. And I remember hearing this, and I, I remember getting God's word out and saying, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about sexual purity? And I just began to find these verses, and I'd write them down. And i memorized them, and I learned them, and I would say them out loud. I said, what does the Bible say about fear and insecurity and being confident and bold? And, and, and I just got all these verses and began to write them out. And I began to learn them and memorize them, and I would say them out of my mouth. And, and what I began to understand and find out is that as I did that, those things no longer dominated my life. I'm not saying I never felt anything negative or bad or lustful or fearful or anything. But, but the power of it broke over my life. I, 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 it was an amazing thing. It was a powerful thing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go into full-time ministry. I thought, what's happening to me? I want to see happen to everybody else. This is incredible. And this is how we do it. We plant a different garden. And, and this is what I want to encourage you to do. When we believe, when we say this is God's word, this is what it is, yeah, it has authority, but it also has power. It has transforming power. And you and I have had seeds planted in our lives that are growing up that are not good. 
And what Jesus does and what God does, he comes and he wants to plant new seeds in your life that will grow. But here's what's awesome. These seeds are more powerful. They're greater. In fact, when Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, the end of 2 Corinthians 3, he talks about how we, we, we look not at things that are seen, but things that are unseen. He says the things that are unseen, the spiritual things, are greater. They're more powerful. They're eternal. And it's just to believe and understand the power of God's word and, and how to enact it in our life. I want to tell you a story some of you have heard before, but I think it will help illustrate this point. This is back when I was a, a young dad uh, in my early 30s. Lisa and I bought a home down in Beechwood, Beechwood Hills, really nice home, our favorite home we ever had, down in Beechwood Hills. And we got it, and we remodeled the whole thing. You know, just got it right, got it remodeled, and the backyard was a mess. I had two boys, and a guy in our church uh, was a logger, so he came and he cut down all these big, huge pine trees that were there. And then another guy who was a earth mover just decided to do us a favor, and he moved this earth around, so he flattened out my backyard. So I went from this kind of nasty, you know, backyard to a really cool backyard for kids. You know, it was flat, and we could put a pad down there to play basketball. So I wanted my kids to play basketball. And, and, and so we were time to plant some grass. And back then I led a college ministry. And we had a lot of college students in our, in our group. And um, I got them to help me. We went to this guy in our, in our church who owned um, uh, a centipede grass farm. And he said, if you can get some guys to come out here, I'll just cut the grass and you can have all you want. So we went out there and I took these guys with me. And they, he sliced it up and we rolled it. We put it on trucks and we packed it up. And I had a bunch of guys helping me. It was the hardest work I'd ever done in my life. I said this before, I'll say it again. If you have a friend that wants to help you lay sod, you have a friend and he wants you to help him lay sod, friendship's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. Those kids should have gone to another Bible study because it was not worth it. But they didn't, thank God. So we got it all. We laid it all out, man. We worked like dogs and got it laid out. And there was this, you know, just every, every bit of dirt covered. And it, and it was in the fall. And as I started, like, looking at it, I thought, wait a second. And Lisa came out, my wife, my Jewish wife, came out. And she was like, what is this? And, and we looked, and the grass was really weedy. I mean, it was just like, I mean, it was more weed than anything. It was like weeds everywhere, like going, oh, my gosh. And so I'm like going, this guy gave me this. But, like, this is Maybe something. So I called him up and I was like, hey, you know, thanks so much. I said, I got a question. I said, I just noticed it, it's, a, it's a little weedy. And that's a nice way of saying it. It's a southern way of saying it. this is This is all weeds, you know. I'm like, this is, this is kind of weedy. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, it's, it's the fall. It's dormant right now. He said, look, let me tell you this. In the spring when it gets 80 degrees, the first time it gets 80, I want you to do this. I want you to go get a little bit of weed and feed, very little bit, put it on the grass. I want you to make sure it's watered. If it's not raining, make sure you water it for maybe an hour every day. And in a week, your backyard's going to look like a golf course. He said, see, centipede grass is real strong. It's real powerful. And if you grow the grass, it'll kill all the weeds. 
It's like, wow. So you know what? We did that. Sure enough, in a week, backyard like a golf course. The same thing's true in your life, in my life, in our soul. There is grass. There is life. There is something God can plant in your life, my life, that is stronger than the weeds. And if you grow the grass, it'll wipe out the weeds. It'll wipe out the weeds. I could have gone out that day and I could have tried to pull up every weed I had. Some of us try to do that now. Is this problem and that we just pull up, we're just out pulling. No, 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 no. Grow the grass. Grow the grass. Grow the grass. If you and I will honor the authority of God's word, we'll experience the power of God's word. I promise you that. I promise you that. If you'll spend time planning this in your soul and you'll calibrate yourself to it, you will experience God in your life in a remarkably powerful way. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this letter that was penned and we thank you so much for its power. And Lord, I pray that in our lives as believers, we would be authentic. We would yield ourselves. We would calibrate ourselves to truth. We'd calibrate ourselves to your word and not calibrate truth to our impulses and our feelings and our desires. Help us to be those kind of believers. Father, and I just pray that many of us here, me, we all struggle with things. We struggle with all kind of things. We've had all kind of stuff planted in our soul. But I pray, Lord, you would plant different stuff in our soul. You'd plant stronger crops, stronger grass in our soul, and you'd grow it, and it would just wipe out. It would eliminate the other. And we thank you for this powerful process that you're doing in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.